Oh, Lord, send your Holy Spirit today. Lord, it's so easy to read over those words and totally miss what you were saying. And it is so important that we get it. Lord, I just want to lift up each person here, especially those that have never been converted, those that are still lost. Perhaps they think that they're converted, they think they're saved because they go to church on Sunday, but they're still lost in their sins, and they're headed for everlasting destruction. And, oh God, I pray this was the day, this would be that day you would turn them, that their hearts would be open to you, that they would turn in repentance and faith to the cross, to Jesus, the mighty Savior, to deliver. And I just pray you'd help me not to be a man-pleaser, Lord, but to speak your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. I think all of you know here at the bridge that we believe very strongly in the reality of heaven and hell. If you've been here for any length of time, that is something that comes out quite a bit. We believe that heaven and hell are real places. We believe that every single person who has ever lived is going to go to one of those two places. And we believe that once you die and your eternal fate is sealed, you can never cross from one place to the other. Those that end up in hell can never get out of that place, and those that end up in heaven will never get out of that place, thank God. But it is inescapable once you die and your fate is sealed. We believe that the idea of reincarnation is a fiction, it's a myth, it's not taught in the Word of God. The Bible teaches that it is, a pan, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. So, it's not appointed unto man once to die, and then he comes back to life as a bird or a butterfly or something. No, he, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then he is judged by God. And we also believe that the idea of purgatory is a, it's a false notion. Um, when I was growing up in a religious tradition, I was taught that if I wasn't quite good enough to make it to heaven, but if I wasn't too bad to go to hell, I would go to a place called purgatory, and in this place I would be burning in flames for a certain, maybe hundreds or thousands of years until my sins had been purged, and I was acceptable now to be accepted into heaven in God's presence. But you know, that concept is really, it's really blasphemous if you think about it, because it says that the work of Jesus Christ was not sufficient to bring a sinner into his presence, that it needs these certain flames to further purge him and purify him to get him into the place where he can, now can come into the presence of God. So we don't believe in purgatory. We don't believe in reincarnation. We believe there are two places that everybody will go, and once you're there, you will never leave. And these places are eternal. And we can't even grasp our minds around eternal. Try, <laughs> try. Think of the longest thing you've ever thought of and just multiply that by thousands and thousands and thousands, never, never ending. In our section this morning, in verses 12 to 16, we're going to focus on Jesus' teaching about who is going to face the worst punishment in hell. He actually, that's what he's talking about here. Who is going to receive and endure the, the, the most severe, the hottest, the worst possible punishment in hell? And what he's going to be teaching us is that greater knowledge without obedience 
brings greater punishment. If I were to take verses 12 to 16 and boil them down into its irreducible minimum, that's what Jesus is saying here. Greater knowledge without obedience brings greater punishment. Now, let's remember the context that we find ourselves in. Luke chapter 10 is a lot like Luke chapter 9, the first six verses of that chapter. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus appoints his 12 apostles and he sends them out. Do you remember what he sends them out to do? Three things. Heal, Heal preach, cast out demons. That's right. Well, he's going to do the exact same thing here in chapter 10. Only, it's not just his 12 apostles, he's sending out 70 others. So, first, Jesus came on the scene, and what, what was he doing? What was his ministry all about? Preaching, healing, casting out demons. Then, he appoints 12 others, and he says, you guys just go and do what I've been doing. Preach, heal, cast out demons. Here in Luke chapter 10, he widens the ministry circle even further to 70. So now you've got Jesus and the 12 and the 70. And what are they doing? We're going to find out they're preaching, healing, casting out demons. And then when you get to Mark chapter 16, he widens that circle to its furthest possible extent by giving that same commission to the whole church. Because in my name, Jesus said, you'll cast out demons You'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. And you are to preach the gospel of this kingdom to all creation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who disbelieves shall be damned. So here we have Jesus like the rock thrown into the stream. And then we have these concentric circles. First the 12, then the 70, then the entire church. Now what are the specific instructions that he's giving here in Luke chapter 10? Let's look at it quickly. He's saying to them that first they must be prayerful. Verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You need to be prayerful. Secondly, you need to be courageous. Verse 3, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Okay, what's it like to be a lamb in the midst of wolves? You're afraid for your life every minute because wolves like to eat lambs. He says, go. Where am I supposed to go? You're supposed to go right into the midst of all of these wolves, and you're a lamb. So he, you're not only to be prayerful, you're to be courageous. Thirdly, you're to be trusting. Look at verse 4. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. Greet no one on the way. In other words, leave with nothing but the clothes on your back. Don't take any extra food. Don't take any extra money. Just go and trust that God's going to provide for you. Courageous, prayerful, trusting. And then he also says in verse 7 that they're to be content. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So you go into a city and someone invites you in and says... Come, stay in my, I've got an extra room, we've got some extra food, come in and I'll take care of you. I want to provide hospitality. Okay, so you go to that house, but you don't say, well, Mrs. Jones down the street, she's got a bigger house, it's a nicer house, and she's got better meals, she's a better cook, I think I'm just going to ditch this place and go down down there. So says, no, stay in that house. Wherever they accept you, stay right there, eat whatever they give you. 
There was a, a missionary who went to Papua New Guinea who said when he got there, they were eating live bugs. And he remembered this verse, eat whatever is set before you. So he started eating live bugs. <laughs> Be content, he's saying, with whatever you're given. And then in verse 9, he says, Be compassionate and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Be compassionate. If they're sick, extend the healing power that I have authorized you to have to bring healing to that person. Be prayerful, courageous, trusting, content, and compassionate. Which brings us then to verse 10. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now this is a strange expression, isn't it? He says, If they don't receive you, this is what you're supposed to do. Lift up your sandal, wipe off the dust of your feet, let it fall to the ground, and leave. And that was to be a picture to them that God is leaving. You see, you represent Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ represents God. So if they were to leave and leave everything of theirs behind, even the dust that came from their ground, leave it all behind, it was a picture that God was leaving. And they were left alone. And not only that, he says in verse 11, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You had your chance. The kingdom came near. You rejected God's messengers. No more opportunities. They've gone, God's gone, and you're going to stand before God on judgment to give an account. That's what Jesus is saying here. Which brings us then finally to verses 12 to 16, which is what I want to focus on because we've already learned these previous lessons in our study in Luke chapter 9. So let's move on then to the next thing that Jesus wants to teach us, which is in verses 12 to 16. And what we're going to see there is the principle greater knowledge without obedience brings greater judgment. And so I'm just going to take that sentence and I find three things in that sentence. Greater knowledge, number one. Without obedience, that's number two. Greater judgment or greater punishment is number three. Let's focus first on this first aspect, greater knowledge. Now, notice in our text that Jesus is going to bring up six different cities. Three cities from the Old Testament, three cities from the New Testament. The cities from the Old Testament are Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. And he's going to contrast those Old Testament wicked cities with three cities that were doing quite well in his day. Cities that he had been to, that he had ministered to. They are Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And he's going to contrast these cities, especially the contrast that they will face when they meet God on Judgment Day. Now, let's turn our attention to the first one, Sodom. Sodom. He says in verse 12, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for the city that rejects the messengers of Jesus Christ. Sodom had a reputation for being just about the most vile and wicked city in ancient history. In fact, Genesis 18.20 says, 
The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Now think about those words. Their outcry has come up to God, and it's great. And their sin is not just grave, which means serious, but exceedingly grave. Now what was their sin that was so exceedingly grave to God that He had to come down and actually destroy that city along with the sister city of Gomorrah? Well, we find the story in Genesis 18 and 19. In Genesis chapter 18, three men appear before the tent of Abraham. And in that particular culture, hospitality was really something valued quite highly. And so Abraham ran to meet these three gentlemen. Well, it turns out these are not ordinary human beings. One is the Lord, and then two of them are angels. And so Abraham runs to get a calf. He butchers it. He cooks the calf. He provides this feast to these three men. And then when they're done eating, two of the men went on ahead towards Sodom, and one, the Lord, stayed behind. And the Lord and Abraham have this conversation where Abraham finds out that God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he's pleading. He knows he's got a nephew that's living in Sodom named Lot. And he says, Lord, if there's 50 righteous men there, Will you destroy the whole city on account of 50? And the Lord says, no, I won't do it. Well, Lord, what about 40? What if there's 40 righteous men? The Lord says, I won't destroy them on account of 40. Well, what about 30? No, nope, if there's 30, I won't destroy them. Lord, I'm just dust and ashes. Please let me speak just once more. He goes, and he finally goes all the way down to 10. If there are 10 righteous people in that city, will you destroy the city? And the Lord says, no, I will not destroy the city on account of 10 righteous well, the sad fact was there weren't ten righteous. When the two angels got to the city, Lot sees them. Lot's sitting at the gate. And you have to know, Lot, the nephew of Abraham, knew the truth of the true and living God. Over in the book of Peter, it says that his righteous soul was tormented day after day as he saw the wickedness around him in this city of Sodom. So he's a saved man, but yet he's a backslidden man. He now is one of the, the judges of that particular city because he's sitting at the gate where the judges sit. And here comes in these two men. He doesn't know they're angels. He just thinks they're men. And because he knows the reputation for the people, the men of that city, he says, please don't spend the night in the city gate. Come into my house. I have an extra room. I've got plenty of food. Please don't stay out here at night. And so they do that. They come in and they come into his home. And then towards nightfall, they hear this rap on the door. And there are people, not just one or two, but dozens of them. They've surrounded the house, the Bible says. There's that many of them. And they're saying, Sir, let this, these two men that have just come to you, let them come out so that we might have relations with them. So that we might commit homosexual acts with them. And Lot says, well, please, my brothers, don't act wickedly. I, I've got two virgin daughters. I'll send them out to you. You do with them what you will, which is beyond belief, you know crazy, but evidently this idea of hospitality was such, such an esteemed thing and women had such a low place in that society that this wasn't crazy for him to do that particular thing. To us it sounds just barbaric. But they wouldn't have anything to do with the daughters. They kept pounding on the door and they were ready to break in the door when Lot goes out to them and pleads with them again. And at that point, the two angels open the door grab Lot, bring him in, and strike the men with blindness. 
Now, if you're struck with blindness, what do you think you're going to do? I think I'm probably going to, well, I can't see a doggone thing. I better just find my way home. But instead of doing that, it said they wearied themselves trying to find the door. They were so steeped in their debauchery and their sin and their wickedness that they would not stop at any cost. They wearied themselves trying to find the door. This is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. God said, I'm going to come down because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is exceedingly grave. Now, what would the people that Jesus was speaking to have thought about Sodom and Gomorrah? What would their opinion have been? Well, they're Jews. Jesus is speaking to people who know the law. And so they would have known from Leviticus 20, verse 13, that the sin of homosexuality is punishable by death, according to Old Testament law. They would have known, secondly, that it's called a detestable act in Leviticus 20, verse 13. And they would have known, thirdly, that God calls it an abomination in Leviticus 18.22. So they would have seen Sodom and Gomorrah as a wretched city, a vile city, given up, and becoming so vile that God himself has to come down and literally wipe it off the face of the map, send fire and brimstone down to burn it up. There we have Sodom. Now, what about Tyre and Sidon, these other two cities? Tyre and Sidon were along the Mediterranean Sea. They're part of the Phoenician coastland. They're two prominent cities, and they had a prominent existence in the Old Testament period. We don't know that too much about them, but we do know that God in Isaiah chapter 23 and Ezekiel chapter 26 devotes these two chapters to prophecies of their destruction. God prophesies that they are going to be laid waste. They're going to be destroyed. Their sins were materialism and idolatry. They were pagan cities, Gentile cities. And interestingly, God prophesied the destruction of Tyre, but Tyre was almost impregnable because it was a city on an island right off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And many different generals had tried to attack and conquer the city of Tyre, and they couldn't do it. It's, you'd have to get there by boat because it's, it's an island, and there's a 200-foot-high wall all around this city so you're going to have to somehow scale that wall or crash it down. And so general after general had tried to conquer the city and they couldn't do it. But God's word said that they were going to be destroyed. So guess what happens? Alexander the Great comes. And the guys on Tyre tick him off because they execute two of his men in broad daylight in front of the armies of Alexander the Great. And so he's just so furious and mad that he determines he's going to destroy the city no matter what, no matter how long it takes. So what does he do? He builds a land bridge. They take all of the dirt and the rocks and the timber off of the shore and they, they just keep throwing it into the water and the, the bridge gets extended further and further. And for seven months, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of soldiers are put to work building this land bridge until they finally can go all the way to the city of Tyre. They use a battering ram and knock down this wall. They go in and they destroy the city. And God's word comes true. Tyre was overthrown. Sidon, likewise, is judged by God. Now, the thing to know about these three cities, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, is that they had almost no knowledge of the true and living God. They're Gentiles. They're pagans. 
Within the town of Sodom, there might have been some knowledge because Lot knew God. But remember, Lot's a backslidden believer. Lot is choosing the world, the best of the world over God's best for him. And so I don't think Lot's doing a lot of witnessing to people about who God is and what they need to do to be saved from his wrath. So in these three cities, there's not much knowledge of the true and living God, probably next to nothing. But now, focus on the next three. We we're going to go from the Old Testament cities to the New Testament cities now. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And these are three villages that are clustered right together on the northern edge of the Mediterranean, I'm, or the Sea of Galilee, excuse me, right on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. They're very close together, like within a couple of miles of each other. And we know absolutely nothing about Chorazin. This is the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. But I think we, it's safe to assume that Jesus had been there. That's the point. Jesus had ministered in Chorazin. Bethsaida was the home of Andrew, Philip, and Peter. This is the place where Jesus fed the 5,000 with five biscuits and two little fish. It was also the place where Jesus healed a blind man by spitting on his eyes. So the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida had, had visitations from the Son of God right in their midst, working miracles, preaching, healing, casting out demons. But the third one is even more pronounced, Capernaum. Capernaum was the headquarters for Jesus. That's where he would always go back to when he was in between these different uh, itinerant jaunts that he would go on, these preaching tours. He'd come back to Capernaum. And so the people of Capernaum knew him. He was a mainstay within their city. They had heard him preach. They had seen miracles from his very hand. They probably knew people in that city that had, had demons cast out of them and been freed from Satan's oppression. Jesus did much ministry there. And it was probably Capernaum that had the greatest privilege of any city on the planet in Jesus' day. Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, right in this little triangle on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, was rich in privilege because they had heard the Son of God. Jesus had come there teaching them who God is, what the kingdom of God is all about, the fact that they needed to repent to enter that kingdom. He had taught them about heaven and hell. They had heard the truth. They had seen miracles to verify that this was the truth, which means that they had greater knowledge. Compare those three cities of Jesus' day with the three cities in the Old Testament. The cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had this great, rich treasure of knowledge. The ministry of Jesus in their midst. But let's go on to the second part of this sentence. The phrase, without obedience. The sad fact is they didn't obey. They heard Jesus, they saw Jesus, but they didn't obey Jesus. They didn't apply what Jesus said to their own life. They tended to ignore or reject the ministry of the Son of God. Now, we don't have any record that they were openly hostile to Jesus. For example, when Jesus came back to his hometown of Nazareth, they tried to throw him off a cliff. And when he's in front of the religious leaders, they try to stone him. We don't read anything like that going on in Capernaum, but we just read that they were indifferent. They didn't really care about his message. I'm sure that the miracles were fascinating and 
titillating and they enjoyed watching Jesus do things that nobody else could do. But when it came to Jesus telling them what they needed to do to enter the kingdom, they just kind of turned a blind eye to that. Careless. Indifferent. Not only did they not obey, they didn't receive the messengers that Jesus sent to them. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Jesus knew that certain people were going to reject his ministry and the people that he sent on his behalf. The 12 and then the 70. He knew that. And he's preparing them for rejection. Some people are not going to receive you, he's saying. Scroll on down or look over to verse 16. He said, the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So here we go. If they reject you, what's happening is they're really rejecting the one that sent you. And that's me, Jesus said. You're my representatives, my ambassadors. They're really rejecting me because I gave you that message to give. But... We can take it even further back. God the Father has sent me. I am His representative in the world. So if those people reject you, they're really rejecting God. And that's what was taking place in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They were rejecting the messengers of Jesus Christ. So they didn't obey. They didn't receive Christ's messengers. And thirdly, they didn't repent. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So he's saying, if those wicked cities in the Old Testament had just seen the miracles that you saw, they would have repented. What's the implication? You did not repent. They would have, but you haven't. They didn't obey they didn't receive the word, the message of the king when he had come from heaven. And here, they didn't repent. Christ called them to repentance. Remember, his first words were repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Folks, nobody will ever be in heaven who does not repent. And Jesus called them to repentance, and they did not. Perhaps they enjoyed listening to his sermons. Do you remember even... Herod enjoyed listening to John the Baptist. You can enjoy coming to church and listening to sermons and never repent. Perhaps they enjoyed that. Perhaps they enjoyed watching him do the miraculous, but they never forsook their sin. They never cried to God for mercy upon their souls. And my friends, be very, very afraid of hearing truth without applying that truth. Be very, very afraid of that because that's what we're seeing here. People who heard truth over and over and never repented, never obeyed, never received the truth. That was the sin that destroyed these cities. More knowledge makes people more responsible. And I believe we have a lot of people in this room today that are very responsible because you've heard a lot of truth. But have you obeyed the truth that you've heard? Have you applied it to your life? That's the question we need to search our hearts about this morning. 
So we've talked about greater knowledge. We've talked about without obedience. Let's talk about this third one, greater punishment or greater judgment. What happened to the cities of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon? Well, we know what happened to Sodom, don't we? God sent fire and brimstone and destroyed it. We know what happened to Tyre and Sidon because God prophesied that they would be overturned and judged, and they were. Alexander the Great came in and wiped out the city of Tyre. Those cities still existed in the day of Jesus. They were still there, but they were just a shadowy ghost of what they had been formerly. They were just a, a shell. These cities, and the cities really stand for the people that lived in the cities, right? We know that. The people that lived in these cities were condemned and they faced eternal judgment. You say, well, Brian, how can you say that? Do you really know that the people in Sodom and Tyre and Sidon went to hell? I, I think I do. It's based on Jude, verses 6 and 7. This is what it says. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as, now here's our connection, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What are we to say about the people that lived in Sodom, the vile, wicked people of Sodom? Jude verses 6 and 7 would lead us to the conclusion that they face the punishment of eternal fire. And if they were condemned, I think it's very, very likely that the cities of Tyre and Sidon followed because Jesus lumps them together as Old Testament cities that experienced the judgment of God. The people of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon in all likelihood are in hell today. Well, actually, it's, that's, that's not completely true because uh, they're in Hades today. But it's not much better in hell because we'll find that out once we get to Luke chapter 16. The, the man who is sent to Hades cries out, I am in torment in these flames. Can't you do anything? Can't you give me a cup of cool water? So it's just like hell. It's just like jail when you commit a crime, you're sent to jail until you are brought before the judge and your sentence is exacted and then you're sent to prison. Well, this is jail. Hell is prison. It's everlasting. Focus for a minute on uh, another phrase that we see here. The phrase is, it will be more tolerable. Verse 12. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom then for the, that city. Now, what city is he talking about? The city that rejected the messengers of Jesus that came to it, that did not listen to them, that did not repent at the preaching of the kingdom. It's going to be more tolerable for Sodom than for Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Look at verse 14. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. Now, what do we mean when he says, it will be more tolerable. More tolerable. More tolerable when? He says, in that day. Well, what day is Jesus talking about? Look at verse 14. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment. That's the day he's talking about. The day of judgment. Or judgment day. When Christ returns 
and he sits on his glorious throne and he acts as judge, it's going to be more tolerable for the people of some cities than for the people of others. Now that's not to say that the people of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon are going to heaven. I think scripture would lead us to the conclusion that they're going to be in hell. It's just that there are going to be some people in hell where it's going to be more tolerable than for some other people. Do you catch that? There are degrees of punishment in hell. Everyone doesn't get the same punishment. Some are punished worse, some are punished less. All are eternally separated from God and His love and His goodness and His joy and His glory forever. But some are going to have it far worse. Some are going to be in the hottest places of hell when others are not going to have as extreme punishment. That's what Jesus is te teaching us here. There are degrees of punishment. You say, well, Brian, do you really think that? I mean, are you getting all of that from this one passage of Scripture? No. Let me share another one with you. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, okay, you got that? Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum had received the knowledge of the truth. They didn't repent. They went on sinning willfully. What happens? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now watch this next part real carefully. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as, as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? In other words, the person who has received the truth, who has had the blessing of hearing the gospel explained to them and opened to them, he goes on to say, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Have you ever stopped for just a few minutes and just tried to meditate on hell? Have you ever done that? I dare you to try to do it for more than just a couple minutes. It's unbearable. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands, not of the devil, not of the flames, but into the hands of the living God. You see, in one sense, God's presence will be absent from hell. His gracious presence will be absent. But He won't be totally absent, according to Revelation 14, I believe, 9 through 11. I believe that's it. We're told there that God will be present in His wrathful presence. God will still be there to make sure that His wrath is exercised upon the wicked, to make sure their sins are punished throughout all eternity. Now just think about that for a minute. The, the hell is called, well Jesus called it the furnace of fire. He called it outer darkness. Meditate on these words, outer darkness. What is that like? It must mean a place where nobody else is. Complete aloneness. No one is there to give you any comfort, any company. You're by yourself with your conscience and your guilt, remembering your sins and remembering that you heard the gospel day after day, Sunday after Sunday, and you never repented of your sins. That's why he says that's where the worm does not die. 
The fire is not quenched. The worm, it's constantly eating and gnawing while your conscience is gnawing at your soul as you remember missed opportunities when you should have repented and you didn't. And in this passage here in Hebrews chapter 10, the author says that if you rejected the law of Moses and broke it, there was swift, deadly punishment, right? Severe. You're a dead man if you broke the law of Moses. But he says, how much severe punishment are you folks that I'm writing to? You know the truth. You've heard the gospel. If you go back to that old way of life, the old ritualism of Judaism, the sacrifices, and reject the gospel that has been preached to you, how much severe punishment are you going to receive? You are going to fall into the hands of the living God like being tossed into a volcano. That's what I picture. Tossed into the midst of the wrath of God, not just for a brief moment, perhaps we could endure it if it was for a moment, but it'll never end. Never. And this isn't the only passage that teaches this. Luke chapter 12. This is the words of Jesus in chapter 12, verse 47. Jesus said, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. Many lashes, few lashes. He knew the master's will. He didn't know the master's will. Now, both of them receive lashes, right? I understand that to mean both groups that he's talking about will go to hell. Some will get lots of lashes. Some will get few lashes. It depends on the knowledge that they had of the master's will, which means if somebody off in Timbuktu or someplace that has barely ever heard of Jesus Christ dies and goes to hell, they'll have fewer lashes than people sitting in this room. If you end up in hell. Jesus also says in this passage, Woe to you, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Now do you pay attention to that little word? What does it mean? Woe. We don't use it anymore. It's an exclamation of grief, distress, and lamentation. It's the kind of word you would use if someone is grieving over the dead. And Jesus is saying, I'm grieving over you, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. I'm grieving. I'm distressed. This is a lamentation because you haven't repented. My messenger came. You rejected him. He went away. You're left on your own. Woe to you! Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Notice also in verse 15, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Now, with all their privileges, they should have been exalted to heaven. They're more privileged than any people that lived when Jesus was on the earth because he was there over and over and over. They heard it constantly. But he said, you will not be exalted to heaven, Capernaum. You are going to be thrust down to Hades. And what do, what do we mean by Hades? Well, Hades is the place of the departed dead. But when it's contrasted to heaven, like in this verse, it's talking about hell. You're not going to heaven, Capernaum. You're going to hell. And here we have Jesus, meek and mild, loving, the one that we, we tend to think walks along the Sea of Galilee patting kids on the head, would never hurt a fly. He's saying, folks, woe to you because you're headed for hell. You've heard my truth. You've heard my preaching and you haven't responded. 
Now, what do you think these people would have said? The people of Capernaum, if you had asked them, who do you think was the most vile and wicked city that's ever lived? They'd probably say, well, probably Sodom. They were so vile, God had to rain down fire and brimstone from heaven to destroy them. It's got to be Sodom. And others might have said, well, I don't know. It could have been Tyre and Sidon too because there are chapters of the Bible devoted to their annihilation and destruction. So Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, they've got to be the most vile, the most wicked. And if you were to ask them, well, who do you think is probably the best cities? Oh, it's probably us because we're God's chosen people. We're God's covenant people. We're Jews. We have Father Abraham. We're descended from him. And they were exactly wrong. The person who's heard the most truth and has rejected it is the most vile in the sight of God. And will receive the greater judgment on that day. And I just want to talk to you for a few minutes, folks. Because I believe we probably have some folks in here that are not converted. Now, you may think that you are converted, but I'd like you to ask yourself just a simple question. Have you ever repented? Have you ever changed? That's what convert means. When something's converted, it's changed. Have you ever experienced a great change in your soul? Or are you basically on the inside the same person you've always been? Are you still a slave of sin? Do you find that you still have the same relationship or desire for God or non-desire, I should say, are you indifferent to God? Or does the person of God thrill your soul? Can you go on day after day after day committing certain sins with no pangs of guilt, no conscience for that, the Holy Spirit's not convicting you, and you're perfectly okay with it? Or... Do you, do you immediately receive impressions from the Holy Spirit as He begins to chastise and discipline you for those things? And you, um, you go to the Lord in repentance and you cry out, God, have mercy on me. I was wrong. I'm, I'm sinful. I, that was wrong of me. Please forgive me for that thing. See, the Christian and in his innermost being wants to please God. Jesus has already taught us if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Can you honestly say that is, that's your life? That's your life. You're denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. Because that's, that's Jesus' definition of a follower. That's what he does. That's what his life is like. His life is filled with seeking to please God. But if you can go on week after week committing sin and not really thinking much about it. Maybe you're having sex with someone you're not married to or you're having an affair with somebody or you're looking at pornography or you lie or you steal or you cheat. If those things don't cause you grief so that you are repenting as, as they happen day after day, you need to question whether you've ever been converted. It sounds like you're the same person you've always been, although you maybe are a little bit religious. You, you attend church. Well, that's good. And I'm glad you do that. But on the other hand, I'm not. 
Because if you never do repent, it would have been better for you never to have been born than to come here week after week and hear the gospel and never be converted. Because Jesus teaches us the most severe punishment in hell is reserved for people like that. Folks, I'm in blood earnest today. If you're not converted, you need to repent today. Why will you wait week after week after week and just come in here and, and observe what's happening at church as though it's a show? We're not putting on a performance for you folks. We're not playing games. This is life or death. This is heaven or hell. This morning as I was praying, I was trying to envision people I know in this congregation suffering in the flames of hell because I, I, it needed to grip me. Like one day it's going to grip maybe some of you. Some of you may find yourself there. And if you do, please, you won't be able to say that, that Brian didn't warn you. Repent. Turn. Forsake your sin. Cry to God for mercy. He promises that he will have mercy on those that cry to him. Those who call unto the Lord, he says, he will hear their cry. My friend, when are you going to follow Jesus? When are you going to start doing it? When will you put away the vanities, the worldliness, and get serious about Jesus Christ and His will for your life? Will you do that today? You know, the Bible teaches us that the gospel is not simply something that we take in and intellectually assent to. The gospel is something that we are to obey. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 says, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There are two characteristics of the person that is going to have retribution dealt to them by Jesus when He returns. Two. Number one, they don't know God, Number two, they don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Do you believe that this is God's word? If that's God's word, that's going to happen. Every person here is going to be there on that day when Jesus comes back in flaming fire. Either he's going to separate you off into his sheep or he's going to push you over here into the goats. We're going to see this. We're going to experience this. This isn't just some fairy tale, some myth that we like to talk about. This is reality. This is going to happen. You're going to be there. Where will you be? Will you be with the sheep or will you be with the goats? Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. Put your trust in him. Complete trust. Now, if you say, well, I've done that, but I'm basically the same person I've always been, it didn't take then. <laughs> Something didn't take. Because if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, a, a process of renovation and change and conversion starts happening where the inside becomes a new person. You become a new creature. God takes out the old heart of stone and puts a new heart of flesh inside and He causes you to walk in His statutes according to Ezekiel 36. You need to know that that has happened to you. You need to be born again. And don't rest 
ever do not rest until you know that you've been born of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said only the people who are born of the Spirit will see the kingdom and enter the kingdom. It's not enough to come here on Sundays. It's not enough to try to be a nice person or to try to obey the Ten Commandments. None of that is good enough. You need a new heart and a new spirit that only, it's a work of God really, but you need to turn to Him right now. Turn to Him in faith. Turn away. See, repentance is just turning away from anything that would stop you from turning to Jesus. What is it in your life that is so crowding your life that is causing you to not be able to really focus your full attention on Jesus Christ. Repent of that. Repent of that. Confess it as sin. Ask God to remove it that you could have a, a whole soul, full devotion to Jesus, so that all your life is spent in His presence, seeking to be glorifying to Him. I'm not going to give an altar call or anything like that, but I am going to call upon you right where you're sitting to do business with God. If you're unconverted, or if you fear that you may be, because your life really isn't any different than it ever has been, except for maybe adopting a few religious rules here or there, but your heart's still the same. If that's your condition, you need to do business with God today. Be reconciled to God. He opens His arms to you. He says, come to me. Come to me. Be reconciled to me. Turn from your sin and come to me and find everlasting life. And so let's just take a few minutes of silence and let's talk to God. And if you're not converted, do business with God. Repent this morning. So let's just take the next minute or so and just, just seek Him privately and silently. Oh Lord, we... We pray on behalf of those that are under the sound of the gospel that you would soundly convert them. Have mercy, O Lord. Lord, may no one from this place this day find themselves cut out, shut out from you in your merciful presence forever, enduring torment and flames. Lord, please, work the work of your grace today. May there be some here that finally begin to get serious about seeking you and turning from sin and truly trusting in Jesus Christ, following him as master and king and treasure and Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.